So I know you guys are enjoying what we do, as well as the other podcasts, news, reviews, and everything provided by the BatmanUniverse.net. And we know this because traffic has been very high on the BatmanUniverse.net. It's exploded. So in order to help pay for their server costs, why don't you consider throwing some cash at them? They have a donate button on their website. You can help with server costs to keep providing the content that you love, all things Batman. Yeah, and for just a few dollars for all the listeners, we'll have it covered in no time. And we really appreciate you helping out uh, those of us here at the BatmanUniverse.net to keep bringing you all this great Batman coverage. So thanks for what you do and enjoy the show. A great philosopher of the internet once said, always be yourself, unless you can be Batman. Always be Batman. While neither of us are Terry McGinnis and will likely never be Batman, we can live vicariously through him in his many comic adventures. Welcome to Bat Books for Beginners. Welcome to episode 142, Bruce Wayne Murderer of Bat Books for Beginners. I am jo- my name is John and I am joined by my guest... I'm Joe Preddy from View from the Gutters. Yeah, and Joe was uh, kind enough to join us for this story. Uh, Dylan will be sitting this one out. Uh, it's just going to be Joe and I. So we will jump right into Education Alley here. The uh, first one that I have is from Detective 766. And in this issue, Crispus Allen says that he needs the LUDs for Vesper Fairchild. LUDs, L-U-D-S, stands for Local Usage Details, or basically the phone records, which I've noticed this a lot from Greg Rucka, because I believe this was Rucka who wrote this one, not Brewbreaker. He uses a lot of acronyms and police slang, and I'm not as familiar with it as I thought I was, because I always have to look it up. Yeah, he likes. I think he likes the uh, air of authenticity it gives. Oh, it, it works beautifully. It just makes me look things up. Uh, so why don't you give us a uh, note number two there, Joe? Uh, oh, uh, so uh, when Bruce and Sasha are sent before the judge, they're sent before Judge Shrek, and that's most likely a reference to the editor, Bob Shrek. Yeah, Batman likes to throw little nods in to people who've worked on the title before. We've seen that in, in a number of past stories that we've covered, various streets and parks and things. So I'm pretty sure that is Bob Shrek that they were alluding to. Who was the editor for that pers- Specific book. Specific book. Yeah. Yeah. And the Batman family at DC is always, well, pre-New 52 was always kind of a uh, one with a lot of history in it. And you had a lot of kind of handing off of torches and, and things of that nature. So it's not surprising to see, not, you know, like uh, nods to, to editors and things like that. Yeah. It's something I kind of wish that they would continue to do. <laughs> Among other things. Yes, yes. Uh, but this will not devolve into uh, no, bashing no, of no, your no. 52. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Um, Robin 98, we have our next one here. Alfred suggests a directly, a, string, a direct, astringent approach to Tim's roommate who finds solace in alcohol. And astringent means causing the con- contraction of body tissues, typically the skin, or sharp or severe in manner or style. I tend to think it's the second one. Because he was saying, be harsh with him, you know, don't let him go down that path of alcohol. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very uh, Alfred thing to say. It, it feels very Alfred when he says it, too. Yeah, and solace is the other word that was in that sentence. Solace means comfort in sorrow, misfortune, or trouble. Um, alleviation of distress or discomfort. So saying, be harsh with him, but then, you know, comfort him because he's going to have a hard time with it. Uh, 
Bruce is at uh, one point in prison. Actually, I found this scene really hilarious because uh, I think it's the head of the Aryan Brotherhood that's calling him a rich louse, which is uh, not necessarily the most common uh, insult uh, in in 2001. But uh, it's a small wingless insect. It is it is the singular of uh, lice. Uh, or it's also used as a slang for a contemptible person, especially an unethical one. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I've also heard uh, tell that it is the base for the word lousy, but I cannot verify that because I have not looked into it myself. And yeah, I, I don't know that off the top of my head, but that sounds accurate. It does. I've I've learned to be uh, skeptical of things that sound <laughs> sometimes when people just put two and two together and get five so um nightwing 66 we have our next note here bona fides or bona fides i'm not entirely sure the proper pronunciation of that um and we're talking about orpheus's credentials for being a superhero uh bona fides are a person's honesty and sincerity of intention or documentary evidence showing a person's legitimacy or credentials so that was Nightwing who hits his first meeting of Orpheus. And we had run into him a couple stories back in this podcast with the miniseries Orpheus Rising. So we were familiar with him. Mm. He continues to be an important person in the Bat books for a while, too. Um, I, I It's hard to tell from reading his entry uh, on Wikipedia. But, uh, yeah, he, he pops up every once in a while. Yeah, it's and and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more once we start to to talk, but a lot it's interesting to see a lot of the characters and where they end up in the Bat universe. So, um it's it's kind of cool. Uh so the Siberian Express that uh Dick mentions when he's uh, climbing up the outside of the building is uh, it's a meteorological term for a frigid air that originates in Siberia. Uh, it's most commonly commonly employed by the news media when such uh, frigid air mass moves into areas where it's relatively unusual, such as the deep south or the eastern seaboard. And I found that interesting that Siberian air, which you would think would be, well, I guess that's why it's not used where we are in the northwest, because it's not as unusual here, but that it could get all the way to the eastern seaboard or the, the deep south from uh, basically cent- north central Russia. That's a long ways for that air to go. Oh, yeah, especially frigid air, but, you know, that uh, it gets out there. Uh, Gotham Knights 26, we have uh, Leslie Tompkins giving us a lesson on uh, passive resistance and, and similar things. She references Gandhi, Han, King, Tolstoy, and Day. Now, uh, we know several of those um, just from common everyday uh, like Martin Luther King Day and, and other things. We're fairly familiar with Gandhi and Martin Luther King, but the ones that I wasn't as familiar with, uh, Thich Nhat Han, born on October 11, 1926. He is a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, teacher, author, poet, and peace activist. He lives in Plum Village in the Dordogne region in the south of France, traveling internationally to give retreats and talks. Nhat Han has published more than 100 books, including 40 in English. He is active in the peace movement, promoting nonviolent solutions to conflict, and he also refrains from animal product consumption as a means of nonviolence towards non-human animals. So Thich Nhat Hanh is actually a really polarizing figure in Vietnam where there is, um, at least there was uh, um, a bounty on his head because of some of his religious beliefs, and he's written about the similarity between Eastern and Western religions uh, at length. He's a really interesting figure. I've read some of his stuff. 
Awesome. Yeah, I that that was the first that I had heard of him. So that that's interesting that you knew of him just different things different people bring to yeah yeah it was i remember reading this for the first time and and seeing her mention him and i'm like oh she talking about because i had just found out about him i um and i don't even remember how i i fall into things sometimes and uh he's he's a really interesting figure he's uh uh he's written a lot about the similarities between jesus and buddha which uh is good reading if you're into that kind of thing that's awesome. Yeah, this one, I I knew the name, Leo Tolstoy, but I wasn't very familiar with the person himself. He's he's famous for writing War and Peace as well as Anna Karenina. Both of those are novels. Uh, in the 1870s, he experienced a profound moral crisis followed by a spiritual awakening, and these events caused him to become a pacifist. To d- Tolstoy's ideas on nonviolent resistance uh, influenced Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr., so kind of the father of the more famous people that we know in this in this sector of society and the world uh and then the one i also didn't know was dorothy day which was um uh she was she lived from 1897 to 1980 which is a long time uh as she was imprisoned as a member of the suffragists alice paul's nonviolent silent sentinels in the 30s she worked closely with fellow activists Peter Morin to establish the Catholic Worker Movement, a pacifist movement that combines direct aid for the poor and homeless with nonviolent direct action on their behalf. She practiced civil disobedience, uh, which led to additional arrests in uh, 1955, 57, and 73 at the age of 75. Yeah, she was still working up into her late years. Right on. Uh, that's that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, a, a, another person that I wasn't aware of, but is re- relatively contemporary. Yeah, I was I was also not aware of, uh, of her, but um, civil disobedience, I like the sound of that. <laughs> all right, well, that's all we have for Education Alley. We'll move on here to our talking points. Um, I don't have a specific order for these um, without Dylan here. Normally, we go back and forth and kind of figure out an order we want to talk uh, about them in. So they're just in the order that I wrote them down. Um the first thing I want to talk about, which is a good thing to me, is the police procedural aspect to uh, Bruce Wayne murderer. Um, Greg Rucka, who we mentioned in the education alley there on Detective Comics, he does a great job writing police procedural stories. Absolutely. And it's one of those genres that it you really have to love the characters in order to make it work because it's kind of cut and dry as far as the writing I mean, you can do it badly, obviously, and many people do. But if it's done well, you can sit a bunch of them right next to each other and you'd be like, well, they're all kind of the same except for the characters involved. Um, so when you get a, good, a writer who does it well and puts in really good characters like we have with Crispin and Renee Montoya and, and the other police characters in the Batman universe, it becomes just a really enjoyable thing to read and to follow. And we haven't started it yet on this podcast, but we're rapidly coming up to the beginning of Gotham Central which I know covers those characters on kind of their day-to-day thing with a little intervention from Batman, but not a ton. So it's kind of focused on the police aspect of things. And I'm really looking forward to that book. Uh, Yeah, Gotham Central is great. And uh, Rucka is helped uh, in this endeavor by Ed Brubaker, who I think does this kind of thing great. He does crime fiction really well. He does police procedurals really well. And I agree with you that it's largely about you know, there's only so many crimes, even in Gotham, there's so many crimes that you can commit. So it really is about the connection between characters and it's the connection that the characters have to the crime they're 
committing. It has there has to be something compelling there. And I think Rucka's really good at looking at situation and going, okay, he's good at getting in the heads of his characters. And I think Ed Brubaker is too. And I think that's why they work well together. And I think that's why murderer is so compelling. And I think that's why Gotham central ends up being so compelling too. You know, Rucka, uh, he's, he's a researcher. He thinks about things really deeply, but he also thinks, okay, so you're Renee Montoya, you're Crispus Allen. What do you, what's your motivation here? Right? Like you walk into the house of, Gotham City's favored son and there's been a murder like how are you going to handle that you're going to handle it you're going to hit it hard right you're going to hit it hard you're not going to be shaken by anything you're going to be you're going to be intense and you're going to find and you're going to you're going to nail him to the wall because that's what you, that's what your job is right and uh, I think it's really well really really well done and I, I agree that uh, um when it's done poorly, it's like slogging through oatmeal. It's bad. It's bad. But I think it's done really well here. Yeah, th- this aspect, uh, as far as the murderer half of the story, because we're doing this in, in two episodes. Murderer is one half. Fugitive is, is the second half. In the first half, murderer, this aspect of the story is the best part and moves at a very good pace, I felt. Um, and to add a little anecdote to this, the other day at work, at lunch, we were talking about procedural type shows and we were talking about like i like the original csi another person there liked miami which i could never get into um scorpion was brought up elementary um without a trace is is one that i loved that a couple people there weren't familiar with but that was another procedural so that we just listed off like six or ten different procedural shows and we're just kind (laughs) of talking about the ones we liked and the ones we didn't get into and everything and and that's where that that comment about it really depends on the characters that's where that came from was that conversation of we just kind of thought about it for a second we're like really these shows are all exactly the same except for the characters who are who are doing the procedural things law and order being one of the more famous ones oh yeah and it's many 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 spin-offs um yeah i i I actually did like uh, CSI Miami uh, more so because it was just so ridiculous. And then they killed my favorite character, and then I stopped watching it after that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I I think of uh, Luther, which was something I uh, – one of my favorite shows. And it's just, you know, it's – there's so many um, instances in that show. And if you like, uh, I, I, I will warn you that Luther will – it's it's not easy to watch, but it is uh, it is well worth it. And uh, you know, it's the the approach to it and the characters are written really really well. And that's really who you have to care about. It's not just about you have to give them something um, because otherwise you're just like, oh, it's their seventeen thousandth rape, and so they're gonna do this and they're gonna swab this and they're gonna, you know, CSI. It was like oh, okay, so. They're going to do this, and then Grissom's going to say something like Yoda, and then, you know, they're going to figure it out, and everything will be like, okay, great. Yeah, I mean, just the, the, what you're saying is exactly true, but I like the interplay between Grissom and, and the, the two female CSIs, yeah, and then, yeah. uh, which I'm totally blanking on names right Seidel now. Seidel and, oh my God, what was it? was um, the redhead. And I'm totally, I am also, I remember there was Sarah Seidel. Yeah, that's the younger one. Yeah, and that was the one that he was in love with. Uh, They had an affair kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, 
I'm I'm going to surreptitiously. <laughs> well, it, it it really doesn't matter, but um, yeah, the just the the interactions between all the characters there was what won me over for that show. Plus, it was it was at a time when I was younger because that was a mid '90s show, I believe, or late yeah, '90s. Late '90s, I think. So I was you know towards the end of high school at the time, so I was kind of getting into those type of shows more so than I than I had in the past. So it was kind of the one I latched onto uh, as a product of the time, and then it, I happened to like the characters. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think it holds more of a sentimental place to me than, say, other shows that might be equally as good or better. Well, yeah, I think it's definitely, you know, I, what what got me about CSI was I loved Grissom. I loved that he was this kind of, like, quiet, unassuming, bookish type that was, like, secretly Batman. You know, he was, like, uh, he, he he was about the evidence at all costs, you know. And, and uh, towards the end of... Um, um, uh, his his being on the show, they started to play with that a little bit more. They started to kind of put him in situations where he was kind of unbalanced, and that was interesting to see, you know. And it made kind of it, it becomes, I, I think, in a good police procedural, like in a good mystery show, the the mystery, the crime of the week, becomes the the medium through which the characters are portrayed, and I think that's really. Um, I think that's really important is you have to have that character development. Well, and uh, tie it into Batman as well, because I don't want to get us too off topic. Right, right. You kind of have what I saw with CSI, kind of the first of any shows, and it's something that has permeated most shows since then is you had it's a 40. Let's say it's a 45 minute show. I'm just rounding up. You have 40 minutes of mystery of the week. And you have five minutes of let's progress the characters. Yeah. And that's where the comic books work the best, too, is you have 40 minutes of the Joker's out causing rampant destruction. How is Batman going to stop him? But then you have five minutes of progressing Batman and Oracle's relationship or Batman and Batgirl's relationship or Dick and and uh bruce's relationship yeah and and that's that's something that i feel like the best batman stories have is they have a problem that they have to solve but then they also make some sort of progress on the character and like i said we aren't going to really be bashing new 52 but one problem i have with new 52 and this will come up a couple times when discussing these two stories is that they tend to have an event that causes a rift in the family and then it's a rift for a while and then it gets repaired and then immediately they have another event that causes a rift in the family <clears throat> and then it gets repaired and and it seems very very cyclical and I, honestly with these two stories which um it's more so in the second one than this one but it's something that rubbed me the wrong way with these stories and i think it's because of the new 52 stories i i think uh, if i was reading this at the time it came out it might seem more novel than it does now because of how many times I've seen this plot uh, in the Batman titles, and I, I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair critique. I think the the differences um, and my experience of the New Fifty Two has been largely about the isolation of the characters. They don't want the characters being too close. Even if you look at things like Superman, Wonder Woman, they're still isolating those two characters. You know, it's. It's very much, and I, I think the New Fifty Two suffers about it. You know, I think the, the saddest thing about it for me is that there is talent there, and there are people that wanted to tell stories and grow these characters. And I think DC is just, I don't, I think it's kind of law. It has no vision right now, and I think there was a vision for Murderer and and for the follow up Fugitive. I think this was, this was a story, uh, you know, told as a police procedural, but I think this is also a story about. 
uh, about Batman and about the Bat family and about the connection he had to this family uh, and and ha- and what happens when that is removed from him by himself. Yeah, let's let's talk about the family then because I, I found this really telling the the Bat family's reactions to the the issue at hand, which is that Vesper Fairchild has been murdered and Bruce is the prime suspect and in, in uh, custody. Barbara feels hurt and frustration that Bruce won't let her help him and keeps everyone at arm's length. Um, Nightwing has this staunch belief, or t- or Dick has this staunch belief that Bruce is innocent, he can't possibly have done this, and anyone who thinks otherwise is going to fight me. Uh, yeah. That's the attitude he takes. And then Tim, he sees more cracks in Batman's infallibility and believes that he is capable of killing. And the things that, that point to this the most recently is Officer Down, where uh, Gordon was shot, and mm-hmm. Bruce, um, and that we covered this when we covered Officer Down, uh, Batman stands there in Jim's uh, hospital room and orders everyone out, including his own daughter, so he can stand there and be all mopey about it. Oh yeah, and yeah, and I think this is there. There's one of the interesting things to me is that at this point, uh, Nightwing has just been adopted. Uh, you know, Dick Dick Grayson has just been adopted by Bruce Wayne officially. Officially, yeah, and so of course this is the kind of for Batman, for Bruce Wayne, this is a, this is a, a large step because he's always been, I think, a little. Um, I think he's traditionally been a little kind of hands off with the 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 father son relationship. It's always been one that he's not been necessarily comfortable with, and so, you know, Nightwing is is fervently, uh, you know, in. And Bruce is, you know, he's in, in his corner. He's very much like, no, there's no way. But Tim and Oracle, but but at this point, Dick has also been in Bloodhaven, you know, and and so Tim and Barbara have been seeing Bruce kind of lose his mind a little bit, and I think that, you know, there's this moment in Murderer where. You know, Barbara has had a, a talk with with Dick, and he's saying like, "Hey, Tim has you to look up to. You just had Bruce. Tim has you and Bruce, and you can make a difference. You know, and that's why Tim is different from you, and that's why Tim is different than Jason." And um, Dick goes out to talk, and they're doing their fight and talk thing. I, I think this is in Fugitive, is or at least Fugitive? in the one that I read. I so okay, so we're uh, gonna get into this because yeah. there's there's two different printings of this. There's the uh, the original one where it goes off of the banner, yeah. that was published on the books, and that was the one that I read. So my murderer stops before Batman six hundred, and that's where my Fugitive right. begins. But if you get one of the newer trades, they went further with Murderer into the story before turning it over to being fugitive. Right. So we can continue having this conversation because it's a good conversation, but I'm not sure if that's murder so, yeah. or fugitive. So uh, we'll, we'll continue with the proviso that the, the most recent re-release of Murderer is 600 pages, and it basically the original release of Murderer and Fugitive is, I can't remember the issue numbers, but Murderer is probably five or six trades, and then there's three fugitive trades. The newest release... Uh, Murderer is, I want to say, twelve issues. Okay, that and sounds, uh, Fugitive is nineteen issues. That sounds that sounds right. So the most recent, and this confused the heck out of me until I went and looked. I actually went to the, I went on Amazon and looked it up, and I was like, 
this can't be right. This murderer is not 600 pages. I have it on my shelf. But the more recent re-release just breaks it into two trades, which is Bruce Wayne murderer and Bruce Wayne fugitive. And so that middle point is not in the same place. So, All right. That being said, let's get back to it. Because I did like what you're talking about there, which is that Nightwing goes out to have this conversation yeah. with him. And they do it in this... Um, we're going to beat up uh, just street thugs while we do it. It's like the Batman version of Aaron Sorkin's walk and talk. It's the beat up and talk yeah, thing is yeah. what I like to think of it. And Nightwing goes, you know, me and Bruce would never let anything happen to you. And the people in our fight, they never, nobody has ever stayed down. We always get up and fight again. And Batman does not kill ever. And Tim, they, they kind of finish the fight. And Tim turns to Dick and says, Jason Todd, Jim Gordon. And yet. Yeah. And that is, I, I think that is just the most powerful thesis for Bruce Wayne murderer because it just shows how far he's isolated at that point. Yeah. And, and I think there's there's a little bit also of Tim's hurt in there because one of the more recent ones, I want to say it was two or three episodes ago, um, we covered Robin's Secrets Revealed. And that is one where Dylan and I, we, we kind of ripped it a new one about how... Bruce didn't do due diligence of trying to uh, find Robin before calling in spoiler and outing Tim to um, Stephanie Brown. And so I think that there's some harbored resentment there still with that as far as Tim Drake Robin is concerned. Oh, absolutely. Because this comes at a time when Batman is pretty much going, okay, you can work in Gotham and you can work in Gotham. You can't work in Gotham. I'm keeping an eye on you. You know, it's, it's very much like... He's HR at Superhero in Gotham. And so at this point, you know, Barbara has been kind of like, uh, you're not really the boss of me. And she's got um, Dinah working with her and sometimes the Power Girl. Prey, yeah, the, it's kind of a Birds of Prey type thing. I think it, it, at this point it's still prototypical. I'm not sure. Um, it's about 35 to 40 issues in. Like It's covering the issues in the story that are covered in Birds of Prey are in the 35 to 40 range. Okay. So, so it, it's kind of getting its feet. It's like about three years in. Right, right. So, um, and at this point, Barbara has been the only one to really tell Bruce, hey, uh, you're not the boss of me, which, you know. The, uh, that and Leslie Tompkins, which we'll, we'll see in this story yeah, a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Who's my hero, like, hands down. Like, uh, so I, I think that I, I think that murderer works as a police procedural because you're not just seeing I, I think there's there's for me reading this because I did read it before uh, New Fifty Two um, when I actually got back into comics when I moved here, which was I want to say two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, this was one of the first Batman books I read, and uh, uh, for me it was very it, it was it was powerful because you watched kind of you're watching Bruce kind of slip away and completely kind of crawl within himself. Well, and and we're definitely going to talk more about that later um, because I have some real issues with some of the approaches in, in these two stories. And one of them is how they handle the, is 
is Bruce Wayne the mask or and Batman the real person, or is Batman the mask and is Bruce Wayne the real person? So let's table that for a little bit yeah, until no, we get we I get have, to that. I have a lot to say about that. Um, but the other person that we hadn't mentioned as far as the Bat family so far is Alfred. Yeah. And Alfred, again, this kind of I think is colored by my New Fifty Two readings in that you know Alfred is returning home again. Another thing has caused him to come back to Bruce, and yet the issue, which was Officer Down, hasn't really been resolved between them. And he goes back to being the good butler. And I kind of want to say that that's maybe a bad thing for that particular character's growth. Like, I feel like he's kind of left to be the rock a lot of times when, uh, you know, Batman goes off and does something weird. Alfred goes and keeps everything going until Batman comes back to normal. Like, he's kind of the steadying influence of the family and of... Uh, Batman, Bruce Wayne, and I feel like it's somewhat at a detriment to his own personal character because it, it, it makes him look a little bit weak in that, you know, you left to make a point. Bruce hasn't learned anything from why you left, and yet you came back. And and this is something... The Alfred character, to me, I think is not... He he's there. I think there's complexity there because I think that to Alfred there are some things that are bigger than that. You know, Bruce is clearly the the last remnants of you know. He clearly looks at Bruce as a son, but I think Alfred also feels, um, and I think this is often mishandled as it as it was, um, and uh, in, in Dark Knight Rises, I think, um. Alfred feels a huge. Um, he he feels the burden of his uh, an obligation to to Thomas and Martha Wayne and to the Wayne estate, and I feel that sometimes I I, I kind of feel that it is that's the point of it. Sometimes uh, you know Alfred has often attempted to get through to Bruce, and has this has resulted in him leaving you know before. Um, and when he comes back, it's always because something larger than the feud between them. I don't want to call it the feud between them, but something yeah, larger. That, but that, That's a good way to put it. Yeah, something larger than the issue or the feud between them is happening. You know, I think Alfred in his heart believes that his place is at Wayne Manor. And I, I, I do believe that is detrimental to him. But I, I feel like, and once again, this may be, I'm not sure where this happens in the difference between the volumes we read, but um, um, I think it's actually the conversation he has with Leslie when Leslie comes over. That, that's definitely in murder. Okay, so and, uh, I'm sorry, definitely in fugitive in the second one. Okay, all right. So it, so, it, does, it still confuses me that this is called murder and the second one is called fugitive because to me, in my mind, those should go in the other order. The other order, yes. But it, it makes sense for for the story that they're in the order they're in. But it's definitely in the second part, fugitive, where the conversation because he's back at the manor and he's cleaning up and Leslie, right. Leslie shows up. Right. Okay. So, but I, I think that uh, when we get to that. I think that's what makes Leslie Tomp- Tompkins an, an important uh, character. And when we get to that, I'll leave that for our fugitive conversation. Um, I, I think that because both of them have struggled with Bruce, they find strength in each other. And I think growth comes out of that because this isn't the first time they've kind of relied on each other. And it's not the first time that um, 
there has been an implication of some some larger feeling between them than than just two adults that grew up with this wounded young man, you know? Yeah, I got that as well, and I didn't have any framework of past... Uh, so, yeah, let, let's come back to that when we're, when we're discussing Fugitive, because, yeah, that, that scene was a little bit off to me, but I think that was just because I don't have the context of what they had interacted with before. Um, so we'll move on here to the tie-ins for this particular story. Um, it's not as bad as some of the tie-ins in Fugitive, but they do slow the pace down a little bit because they're also trying to tell their own story as well as, as a piece of this Bruce Wayne murderer story. Um, and if you're reading just for uh, this story, you can kind of skip over that part, you know, at least on a second read-through. On a first read-through, you don't really know where in the story the particular aspect for Bruce Wayne murderer occurs, so you kind of got to read everything. Yeah. Unless you're really good at picking out context while skimming, which I'm not. No, and, and it's so... Especially if you pick up the new trade or if you're picking up the issues individually, uh, be prepared to read a lot about Ted Cord. Um, the Blue Beetle. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Pre, po, uh, pre-New 52 Blue Beetle. Uh, Pre-Infinite Crisis Blue Beetle, I should say. Um, but there's one piece particularly in the tie-ins that will relate to things we've covered here before, which is um, the escape from Lockhaven. That's a, been a slow build that Dylan and I both enjoyed when we've the, covered the Nightwing books that we have covered on, on the show. Um, you finally get Dudley Soames and Ted Ryerstad escaping from Lockhaven putting their slow build plan in motion using amygdala to basically cause chaos and give them cover to escape Lockhaven. So I really did enjoy that aspect because I was familiar with that story. And then you bring up things like Ted Cord and some of the other stuff that those aren't titles that we were covering that portion of it. Right. So that stuff just seems out of place because we're not as clued in with those particular titles yeah. as someone who's reading them on the month. Well, month yeah. Month. And if you haven't been reading Nightwing, you know, approaching this, then you're going to be totally lost with the, the amygdala, amygdala plot. And, uh, I mean, I don't think they even say amygdala's name in this. Uh, uh, it per, happens when Nightwing goes back, when which actually goes back, yeah. is right around the border of murder, murder and fugitive, fugitive. So I'm not sure which uh, one that falls into. But yeah. when he runs into Amygdala in the chaos, he's like, oh, this is where you are. I, yeah. I was wondering where you were. Yeah. And uh, it's it's I always love seeing him because I think he's not one of the more popular Batman villains and he's not one of the more well-known villains. So whenever I see him, I'm kind of like, yeah, I know who that is. Yeah, he's he's definitely one that I learned about in Nightfall. Um, when we were covering Nightfall, he's one of the gauntlet that yeah. Batman faces before Bane breaks his back. And so that was my introduction to him. And yeah, he's he's a kind of a fan favorite of mine as well, along with um, the little old guy ventriloquist. Yeah, I can't remember the, the guy's brand. name. Uh, there's, uh, but the I one that's in the animated series. Because I know a couple different people have been the ventriloquist, but that particular one is the one I'm most familiar with and I like, and Dylan does not. So <laughs> we kind of butt heads on that guy. <laughs> that's that's fair. That's fair. Uh, <coughs> Batman Batman is polarizing. Um, yeah, some of them. Uh, so I didn't really have more to say about the tie-ins, um, and that's a struggle you face in these type of books often, uh, especially when... Each book is trying to tell its own story and then kind of swing through for some t- some crossover stuff and then go back telling its own story. And I don't have a good way of doing this because not to keep bringing up New 52, but it had the same problem 
where you'd have events like uh, Death of the Family, which kind of stalled out certain books because they tried to tie in completely, and so they put their story on hold. Well, I think this is a problem that actually, um, as much as I hate to give up an opportunity to say that the New 52 is doing something incorrectly or poorly, this is a problem that event books have had for, for decades because... You have so you have Bruce Wayne murderer that's going to lead into Bruce Wayne fugitive. It's this huge like six or eight month event or whatever, and then you're using detective and you're using Batman to kind of pick up you know slouching sales on the others. So you're going to include all of them. You're going to put the Bruce Wayne murderer stamp on Nightwing or on Batgirl or on whatever. And and the thing is is that a lot of time that leads not just into confusing tie-ins where you've got the ending of this kind of build with the prison break or this kind of subplot with cord industries or, you know, all these kind of really weird things that are happening. Um, you also just get a bloated story, you know, and, and, and I, you get a story that's much, much longer. I mean, the two trades I read today uh, are well, it's over well over a thousand pages. And it doesn't need to be anywhere near that big. But you had that problem with Blackest Night. You had the seven or eight main, the seven main books. But then you had tie-ins with like JSA and Superman. And it was just, it was like this story literally had no, did not need to be told. The story added nothing. It had nothing to do with the main storyline. And some of them were just badly done. I mean, this is this is a challenge for the industry in general because, like you said, um, the way they handled it here, which I don't think is particularly better or worse than the way the New 52 is handling it, which is a portion of the book is, is devoted to this story, but the other portion continues its own story. Mm-hmm. And then you have the New 52 method I mentioned where it just stops its story for that issue, and that issue is only related to the, the overarching tie-in to the, the big story. And then you have something like Blackest Night that you mentioned. Those were minis, weren't they? The tie-ins? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So it was like Superman, Blackest Night. Yeah, and Flashpoint did this too. And I think that there's a challenge there too because what do you do? You pause the main book or do you make those people do a second book during the month or do you have a different team do that tie-in book? There is no 100% win-win solution to this. But I think the minis is probably the best of what we have so like the flashpoint minis they didn't have to do anything at all with those books and what they were currently covering but they covered that character or a facsimile of what was in those books to begin with interacting within the flashpoint story or within the blackest night story yeah and i i think that it it is very tricky to do an event book which is why i've been of the opinion being a child of the 90s uh which i I feel there was always some event going on. There was always some event that was all of the X books or all of the Superman books. I, I just do less event books. Trust in your readership. You know, like have patience. Let let things bear out because both Marvel and DC these days, it's like they put out a number one, they put out a number two, and it's like, oh well, this isn't immediately selling like you know hotcakes. So we've got to cancel it and do something else. It's like, no, trust your readership to come around, trust your talent to tell a good story. Well, and also it takes people a good, a good six months or more of reading a story to kind of tell, okay, this is going a direction I want it to go, or this isn't going a direction I want to go. And then once it kind of is going a direction that people like, 
they'll tell their friends about it and then their oh. friends will go pick up that trade or the single issues that they can find them and start picking up the single issues. So I, I feel like you've brought up another thing with the industry that, that, is, that is a problem to me, which is jumping the gun on sales numbers because if you're making a change, you have to give the casual person who's not following the um, solicitations and going into their comic book store at least once a month or once a week and you know who's not right on top of it to figure out that something's changed and maybe they should check it out you need to give them time to figure out that something's changed and check it out and see if it's good before you uh, um, do something drastic about oh, it absolutely absolutely I think that it's uh, you know I I I I really feel as if, as somebody that that is just a reader in general, you got to give things time. You got to give things time to get traction. You got to give playing people time to get into things. It's it's really kind of disorienting to you know. Event fatigue is awful, and having a new number one every twelve months or eighteen months is is exhausting. It's like, I mean, yeah, I understand the argument that it makes for a good jumping on point, but it's. I just think that there's got to be a better way, you know. I I mean, I can see the the idea of, um, but I mean, this is kind of a miniseries idea. The idea of taking a story or two and encapsulating it into, okay, this is, like, if let's say they do every 12 months a new number one, it, like kind of what Marvel it, it has been doing for the past few years mm-hmm. of re- rebooting with new number ones f- fairly often. Um, and let's say that you do do it every year, and then you could call it, you know, uh, Captain Marvel 2016. You know, so it starts yeah. January, uh, and and but you you need to have some way of differentiating it because when you look at a comic book cover, the date on it is very difficult to find. Usually, mm-hmm. you usually see the title and the number. And so if you've got, you know, seven Captain Marvel number ones through the various years because you've rebooted it a number of times and someone's going through back issues that aren't uh, organized, they're going to have a difficult time figuring out, okay, which series is this, which number one, which number two, which number three do I need to get, you know, to to read this story or, you know, which trade do I need to get. So, I mean, trades do a better job. Usually they have like the title of the arc or something in it for Marvel. Yeah. Um, So, I mean, trades are a little easier to figure out, you know, what, what it is you're getting, but this is a problem that the, the reboots of new number ones do besides the fact of, of trying to use it to boost sales, which I think is rapidly dwindling away because people are realizing it. It's like putting collector's edition on things. Like it worked for a while because people didn't know that they were just doing that to get you to pay more for it. But now people are aware of, okay, new number ones or so they'll make us pay more or we'll go speculate on it, hoping it'll go up in value, but there's seven number ones for this series. So it's not really going to be valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Absolutely. uh, So, it, it, it's a difficulty they face and they kind of have to pick a model and stick to it. And I understand why they do it because, and this is something I've shared before. New 52 got me to read comics because I felt like I had a starting point. Right. Be, but it wasn't just because it was a new number one. It was because I was told we're starting a new, a new there, starting there's, point. there's nothing you need to know from the past. I didn't understand. I, I'd never really picked up comic books, so I didn't understand. I could start at the beginning of a storyline and go from there and I'd probably be okay. Right. Or I would have been in, involved sooner, but it, the new number ones gave me a place to start. And the promise of, you don't have to know 50 to 75 years of continuity to, to follow this. And then some of the titles delivered on that and others did not. 
Well, yeah. I mean, Batman was a huge abuser of that, I think. Yeah, and, they tried and, to say all the continuity was within the last five years. Yeah, which is which is ridiculous. And I think it's a it's a fairly easy fix. You just use subtitles. So you have Miss Marvel, this storyline, and this, and then you go like one of twelve. And I because I think that that makes it so that you're not misrepresenting the situation as blatantly as a new number one does. Because I think that. You know, I love the idea of miniseries, and I think that if, if both DC and Marvel both did things where it's like, okay, um, and just the first thing that pops in my head was uh, uh, Cullen Bunn's uh, Fearless Defenders, which I think was canceled after 12 issues. But if that had just been a 12-issue miniseries, he could have gone into that, told his story to completion, and then they could have been like, okay, well, we gave this a year. It didn't do very well, so we're going to move in a different direction. But the readers, the supporters of it, got a full story. Rather than, you know, what they got, which was kind of a bunch of threads being, you know, some threads being cast out and some, you know, uh, clearing, clearing up things here and there. But, yeah, I, th- I think that you invest in your creative teams like they're not just three. Don't just invest in the things that Matt Fraction is doing or that, you know, your big names are doing, but like have faith in your talent and that they're going to tell cool stories and give those stories some traction, some time to get off the ground. Um, I, d- I don't want to keep belaboring the, this point, but one more thing I wanted to add to it. Um, maybe if we treated this kind of like uh, sports, where and, and I know this may be polarizing to some people, but I like sports as well as nerdy things, so sue me. I also like um, sports. Uh, but if you treated it like a miniseries as either like a 10-day contract or a, uh, or a contract for a year with, with the team option... So, like, you, you tell the, the creative team, you're getting six issues to tell this story as a mini. We have the option of turning it into an ongoing if we feel like the character and the team deserve it. Mm-hmm. And then you, they know they have to tell a six-issue story. They know that they need to be prepared that at the end of that six-issue story, that could be it. And then the and don't you know put a bunch of plot threads in there that, that are just going to get cut off because the series gets canceled. Yeah, absolutely. But then if it gets picked up then hopefully you tell them early enough that they can introduce towards the end of that story some plot threads to to turn it into an ongoing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great idea. I I really do. And I think it would revitalize certain parts of the industry because I really think that where DC used to be strong was they had this really rich uh, continuity, but they also had this really rich, like not continuity. They had Elseworlds. So if you were if you came in and you were like, hey, I want to tell a story where Batman is Dracula, or I want to tell a story where Superman is Green Lantern, you could come in and tell that story. And you know, not all of them were great, but they were all interesting. Because who doesn't want to see what happens when, you know, Superman is found by Thomas and Martha Kent or or Wayne? I'm sorry, Martha. The the Martha thing gets me because I Superman's mom and Batman's mom both Marthas. In case you didn't realize that. It, it, it's a common name of that era. Yeah, it really is. Everybody's Martha. But, you know, and I think that once they started kind of getting away from that and focusing so hard on their continuity, I think that really starts to hurt you when you're dealing with 80 years of continuity. Yeah, it does. Okay. Well, that was a good discussion, and we don't have a ton more for this particular story, so it it fits well here to have that discussion. But I did want to talk briefly about the takeaways from just the murderer story, which is that Alfred is back as Bruce's butler, and we kind of already talked about that a bit. 
And also that Batgirl learns Bruce Wayne is Batman. Yes. And she does this all on her own. It's not an outing like uh, what happened with Stephanie Brown and, and Tim Drake. She sees Bruce on TV being arrested, and she sees, I think, uh, kid pictures of him in the manor, and she kind of pieces that together with the jawline that she knows of Batman, and she figures out that Bruce is Batman. Well, I think it's also the look in his eye, too, because these are both incredibly emotional times for him, so I think it's it's a both. I, I That's what I always got from that, was that... Yeah, was the there luck. could be that, too. I mean, it's hard to tell with the whole white thing yeah. as, how much you actually get of their eyes. Yeah. Um, I, I know that's a stylistic thing, but I don't know if it's, like, an obs- obscure, obscuring or if it's just a stylistic thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the beauties of comic books that you can kind of determine it whatever way you decide to determine it. And it's Yeah, but the, the key point there is she has limited information of, uh, when Batman is in the suit, whether it's eyes and jawline and voice, which usually the, the reason people don't figure that out is the voice modulator or Christian Bale voice or whatever, uh, whatever yeah. the case may be. Um, but she figures it out on her own is kind of the key takeaway yeah. from here. Um, so I thought those were interesting um, developments from this story. Yeah. And we've already kind of talked about those. So we'll move on here to let's talk a little bit about Leslie Tompkins and Batman as kind of polar opposites focused on the same goal. So there's two approaches to keeping Gotham safe. Leslie heals the sick at her clinic, uh, sick and the broken, and she's very much a pacifist. And she's very much like, I tolerate what you do, Bruce. But I feel like you could do so much more as Bruce Wayne. Like, she even says as much, I don't remember if that was murder or fugitive, when Bruce comes into the clinic and she basically, I think it's fugitive. It's right on the border. It has to be fugitive because he's escaped at that point. Yeah, if it's not in fugitive, it's right, it's like in the last pages of murderer. So on the new one, it's probably in murderer. It's definitely a murderer in the new one. On the old one, it's definitely in fugitive. Um, where Bruce comes in or Batman comes into the clinic and and brings in like a junkie or something that he rescued and and hands it off to Leslie and she tells him that um, Batman can't help me but there's a lot that Bruce can do. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, that's a powerful moment because I think the two loudest voices in in Bruce Wayne's head and Batman's head for a while have been Alfred and Leslie Tompkins, and I think you know Alfred is largely with concerned with Bruce healing himself. And and Leslie was very much about him, you know, in his mission. And they've never seen eye to eye on that. And I think that's been a powerful, you know, I think they're two very powerful anchors in, in Bruce Wayne's life. And I, I love the way she chides him in this. I always love when Batman gets chided because he deserves to be chided a lot because I love him. I love the character of Batman, but... He's kind of a jerk. That's I've actually used stronger language than that many times. I usually use much stronger language, but uh, there there are ways. If you really want to know how I feel about Batman, I, I will I will throw up some links from you on this description, and you can see. But um, yeah, I love that moment. I love when he comes in and she, he's like, "Do you need help?" He's like, he's looking out of the window of her clinic, and he goes, "It's busy." She goes, "No, this is normal." And he's like, do you need help? And she's like, not for Batman. Like, Bruce Wayne is who really could help me now. Yeah, Bruce Wayne has been, uh, like, her benefactor for, yeah. for a long time. And so she, she's gently trying to encourage him. And we'll get more onto this, I think, when we talk uh, in Fugitive. Um, she's doing, in her own way, trying to tell him he's wrong to dump the persona of Bruce Wayne, which we'll see from a lot of characters when we cover that story. Um, 
so then, of course, we've talked that Batman fights crime and lives a very violent existence. So he tries to punch punch the city into a better place, where Leslie tries to patch the city into a better place. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really an interesting dichotomy there, and I, I I think we both agree that Leslie is a wonderful character and provides a very different aspect of Gotham, like we were talking very early on about Gotham Central and the PD's aspect of Gotham. Mm-hmm. I think the Leslie Hospital aspect of Gotham is another much-needed uh, piece to make it more than just another superhero book. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, I, I've always liked her character. There's, there's, uh, she's, she's a very... Uh, strongly written character in this and uh i think that um when she's used properly she's uh she's a she's a powerful force in gotham and batman's life and i really really like her and i i like alfred for the same reasons but she's i just love how she's one of the few people that it's just like bruce you're being stupid yeah, she she does not pull any punches for no, sure, no. and that and Alfred is, is not that way in his approach. No. So it, it's two different people trying to do the same thing with different approaches. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess we have one speculative question here I'd kind of like to tackle before we wrap up this episode, and it's not answered in the fugitive that I read. I know you said the newer trades go further, and I don't know if it's answered there. <clears throat> but who broke Bruce out of Blackgate? So in from what I read, I don't ever think there there's a scene early on in Murderer where he's in his cell and he goes, there's three ways out of this cell without lockpicking tools. And then he does the Morse code thing with Alfred. Right. That's kind of the clue that we're given in Murderer. Right. And so I think uh, I, I don't think it is ever out. I don't think it's ever... Um, uh, out and out stated who breaks him out. I think he just, I think it's impl- heavily implied that what he's telling Alfred is bring my gear, put it in this place. One thing I will say though, it's very subtle. Um, very early on in fugitive, we are told that he broke out on his way back to Blackgate from a hearing. Right. So it's implied to me by that statement. He was not in Blackgate when he escaped. Yeah. He escaped in transit somehow. So yeah. that makes me wonder if, he did it on his own or if he had arranged with the Morse code for uh, Alfred to either get someone to spring him who were never told who um, it's never, Alfred never says it's him. Alfred never says it's not him. Right. Um, and no one else in the bat family, obviously based on how they react, it's not them. So we don't know if, if he did it on its own or he had help. Yeah. I think it's, it's, and I don't want to say heavily implied, but I think it's implied that, um, he basically is like Alfred, leave this stuff here, and Alfred's like, "Are you are you sure that's really what you're gonna do?" And and so basically, that Alfred has a rough sketch of the plan, and uh, that it, it makes I guess it makes sense to me that Batman wouldn't involve anybody too close to him in his break that, and he wouldn't need to right with a few well placed you know punches and kicks. You know he's out and about and then he gets right to where he needs to be and and i mean we can gauge that from murderer where the arians are let into his cell and he hospitalizes two out of the three of them pretty badly so <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it, it we we're not saying that he needs to have help but the question is there of did he have help or did he do it on his own and it's as far as i know never answered 
I yeah I and I believe that you are correct. I don't I don't think it is answered. I'm going to I'm going to look into this a little bit uh, in the interim between this and fugitive and see if I can find anything in my extended um, trades. But I I don't remember anything overt being mentioned about it. So okay, well I guess that leaves us then to let's give a rating uh, out of five batterings. Uh, to this particular story, just the murderer side of it. Uh, I, I'll give it. Uh, I'll give it. Uh, I always err on the generous side, so I'll give it four batterings. Okay. Um, I am not overly thrilled with this story. Like, it has some elements I like, but it has enough other things that I don't like that we've we've kind of covered in 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 the discussion. That I feel like a three out of five is is what I'm going to give it. It's slightly better than average. Um, but I feel like there's so much more that, that they could have done, uh, and things that they chose to do that I, that I didn't particularly care for. So three out of five is my rating. That gives us an average of three and a half out of five batterings. Um, if you would like to leave us your thoughts on Bruce Wayne murderer, your thoughts on Bruce Wayne fugitive, uh, you can go over to this page on the batmanuniverse.net and leave your comments there and we will read them on a future episode. Um, while you're at the website, be sure to check out the comic reviews, news, and some of the other podcasts that the Batman Universe has to offer. And we will be back next month with Bat Books for Beginner 143, Bruce Wayne Fugitive. And now we're going to leave you with the credits here. Uh, Batman, the Tencent Adventure, starts this whole thing off in March 2002. And that was written by Greg Rucka with art by Rick Burchett. And the editors were Michael Wright as the associate and Matt Idelson. For Detective Comics 766 through 767, which were March and April of 2002, the writer was Greg Rucka. Artists were Scott McDaniel and Steve Lieber, who's incredible. Uh, The editors were Michael Wright, uh, who's the associate editor, Uh, Matt Idelson for 766, and Bob Shrek for 767. Uh, Batgirl 24, March 2002, writer Kelly Puckett, artist Damian Scott with editor Michael Wright. Nightwing 65 and 66, which were March and April 2002, by uh, writer was Chuck Dixon. Artists uh, were uh, Trevor McCarthy and uh, Rick Burchett, and the editor was Michael Wright. Gotham Knights 25 and 26, March and April 2002, writer Devin Grayson, artist Roger Robinson, editors Nachi Castro was the assistant, and Bob Shrek for 25, and Lisa Hawkins for 26. Birds of Prey, 39 and 40, March and April of 2002. Writer Chuck Dixon, artist uh, Rick Leonardi, and the editors were Lisa Hawkins, associate, and Matt Idelson. Robin, 98 and 99, also March and April 2002. Writer Chuck Dixon, artist Pete Woods. The editors were Michael Wright was as the associate and Matt Idelson. Uh, Batman 599 from March 2002. Writer Ed Brubaker. Artist Scott McDaniel and editors Michael Wright, associate, and Bob Shrek. All right. Thank you guys for listening and join us next month for the conclusion of this story. 